Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. And so you, you're doing an hour, a little bit over an hour of, of racing, Okay. and it's really exciting. It's high-paced. People fall across the finish line. Lactic acid is everywhere. People, are, crowds are going nuts. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm doing okay, though I did have a little incident this weekend. Yes. So we are we, we did some weightlifting interviews, which we will share with the, the listeners soon. So I was trying a little weightlifting, and unfortunately my nose met the bar. No, I do and see. Not, and, and the bar did not say hello. <laughs> the bar was it's like, not funny. I don't like you, lady. Boom. Wow. So, yeah, got a little bruise on my nose from oh, mishandling. Scar, scars of war. Scars I of- know, but it was so, okay. <sighs> you know, I'm this little middle-aged woman trying to lift, and not a very heavy barbell. Thankfully, the gym was, was pretty empty because it was a Friday evening. Ah, well, that's good. You know, an hour before closing. So I, I would say you're saving face, me. but. <laughs> oh, my face was definitely not saved. What did you think of the weightlifting? It's awful. Oh, you don't like it? You didn't feel pumped afterward? No, I felt like, why would anybody do this? Oh, wow. That's oh. interesting to me. Usually when I lift weights, I feel like pumped afterwards and, and really excited. Now I'm going back to Zumba class. That's... Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm a nice dancer at heart with my Latin there rhythm. You go. <laughs> there you go. And there are no twizzles in weightlifting. Exactly. <laughs> See, I wouldn't hurt myself with a twizzle because there's, you know, what do you do? Smack your elbow? It's fine. <laughs> All right. But you had fun this weekend. I did have fun this weekend. So the USA Triathlon's National Age Group Championships was here in Cleveland this weekend, so I was able to talk with a couple of people, and we'll have our first guest today. The triathlon test event for Tokyo 2020 is actually this coming weekend in 
uh, Tokyo, so it, we thought it would be a good idea to air this one now. I talked with Tim Yount, who is the COO and Chief Sport Development Officer of USA Triathlon, and at the age group championships, he was also one of the announcers, which was cool. And so we sat in Edgewater Park on August 8th, which was a little windy, I will warn you now, but we talked about the sport of triathlon and what goes into it. Take a listen. We are here on the shores of beautiful Lake Erie in Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not an oxymoron today. No, I know, it's, it is beautiful. And it's, and it's a little windy, but that's all right. Um, Although, are you worried about the wind for this one? You know, you always look at the wind as a, as a factor for what it does across the board mm-hmm. for the sport as a whole. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes the bike harder, it makes the run harder, it makes everything okay. harder. But we're, we'll be fine come race day. It's supposed to be beautiful on race day. Excellent. Well, that's what we want. Which is great. <laughs> so, this weekend is the age group nationals for triathlon. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean in comparison with the Olympics? Yeah, the, the Age of National Championship, uh, we break it down into sprint and Olympic distances. Mm-hmm. So it's two different races for one day we have the Olympic, one day we have the sprint. And it's the best age groupers in the country, all 50 states represented. Uh, we have athletes that have been in the sport for 30 years. We have athletes that are doing their first big race ever. Uh, we have athletes as young as, as 16, as old as 90. Uh, so it, yeah, so it really is the gamut for the best. And this is the race where if you're looking for that A race, mm-hmm. that ability to target you know the top athletes in the country, you come here and you, you put it out there. And okay. these athletes know that uh, because there's no field that's going to be any deeper than this. Probably in the world, we talk about yes in America, but probably in the world, nothing's going to be as deep as the American championships that we're going to experience really? this weekend. Yeah. What makes the American team so strong or American so the sport was invented here it, it, yeah you, you've done your research um, it was in, it was invented here and I think we take great pride in that um, granted these athletes are the older athletes the middle aged athletes are not going to be in the Olympic Games you've got some athletes though that could be down the road okay. part of the Olympic team if they so follow that trajectory uh, we have a couple athletes that have come through the age ranks but more than likely these are the athletes that have uh, just found this sport to be an amazing sport. They love coming here. They love competing. They love training. They love the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. We talk more about lifestyle than anything else. This will ch- this sport will change lives, and that is what makes it different. You, you maybe have never done a sport in your entire life, right? You've been a couch potato. You have no interest in sports. Maybe your family didn't grow up doing sports, mm-hmm. but all of a sudden somebody comes to you and says, "You know what? This sprint triathlon. Let's do it." And I think a lot of these athletes have that kind of story to tell. That's how they got started. And all of a sudden, it just keeps going up and up and up. And so you, you find themself, you find yourself at a national championship competing against the best in the nation, and you feel pretty proud about that. What about the sport draws people into it, into competing? You know, you talk about lifestyle. What What is that lifestyle? I think it's it creates balance across several platforms. Number one, typically when you get into something like this, you get a cross train, right? If you get hurt running, what well, guess you spend time on the bike, right? We spend time in the pool. If you're tired of swimming, maybe you swim less, but you spend more time on the bike and run. Okay. I think there, there's that part of that that makes it re- really, really fun for people. But but nutrition, sometimes you'll change your diet, you change your sleep habits because we talk about sleep and recovery being so important. Just the things that it does to change your life, I think, is, is really what makes it attractive. Because... You'll see the smiles on people's faces when they talk about the sport. 
you they come back to the office and they're they're happy that their activity level is has increased. I talk to a lot of people that are in their fifties and sixties that tell me I've never had so much energy in my entire life. And, and I'm not even training more than five or six hours a week. And that's one of the messages too, is it's not about training 20, 25, 30 hours a week. It's about making it work within your lifestyle. Now granted, not everybody here is going to be able to say that because some are fanatical about the sport. <laughs> But you know what you're going to have your collection of people are going to be like, it fits what I want to do with my life. And, and it gets inserted in this part of what I do every day. Okay. And, and you know, that's really interesting because you hear people train for marathons and it's just, it sounds like a slog to me. You know, it you've does. got huge long runs on the weekends and it just feels like, okay, if I'm going to run a marathon, this is my next six to nine months and I'm doing my program and I'm, I'm that's, that's it. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to a, a woman on the elevator this morning in the hotel and, and I... She said, oh, you're with the triathlon because I have my triathlon shirt on. And I said, yes. She said, I used to do triathlons. And I said, why don't you do them anymore? She said, well, I'm training for a half marathon and there's just no time to do anything else. And I started, I didn't respond because I actually got off the elevator at that point in time. And I, so it, it does follow what you're talking about, that sometimes there's that single track and focus that people take that I don't have time for anything else because I'm going to put in hours and hours of this and hours and hours of that, whereas triathlon it can be a, a fit with a few hours running sometimes they take that mindset a little differently and, and they move it down a path of i got to be doing 60 hours a week i got to be doing 70 not hours a week miles a week and i got to be doing this i got to be doing that and so maybe there is that time for us to reflect with some of those runners and some of the people doing other things that this is a lifestyle that you can fit you don't have to worry about massive amounts of time that you, you need to commit to it this woman felt that she did and so she's not doing traveling anymore So maybe maybe the conversation with her, with with her friends is, you know what? Once you get your half marathon done, come back to triathlon and enjoy a lifestyle. It would might might fit you even better than what you were doing before. It, it is interesting to hear, like, oh, you can do this in five to six hours yeah. a week. Yeah, which is good. I've done a couple triathlons. I cut That's awesome. a couple sprints. I'm like, uh, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. I'm like, I should get back. To We got to get you back to it. <laughs> Too bad I didn't know that this year because it's so convenient <laughs> ride my bike <laughs> and it doesn't matter what bike you have either yeah, does it yeah, it right? doesn't I have a little, a little cut. oh we'll get to gear in a bit okay. I want to know but okay so regular person can fit this into a regular person's lifestyle but when you're talking about an Olympic athlete what is their training like you know the Olympic athletes and everybody's a little bit different mm -hmm. theirs is obviously a lot more intense mm -hmm. there's a lot more on the line for an Olympic athlete depending on whether they're following the, the long track of, of racing or they're following the draft legal track of racing, which is the Olympic Games track, your workouts and your sessions are going to be a little bit different. Um, you're going to be doing track workout, whereas a lot of the age groupers may not touch the track because they always get injured when they do. They're going to be a lot more on top of their nutrition. They're going to be a lot more on top of recovery. Uh, they're going to travel the world because they need to get to the events. To, to, to make money, make a living, whether that be long or or big distance uh, or, or draft legal distance type of racing. So it's, uh, and everybody's gonna be a little bit different. The, these athletes though, pay close attention to what the elites do, what our top athletes do. And some will, will borrow pieces of what they do if they're seen to be successful. So in that way, an elite athlete, an Olympic caliber athlete will be quite a, a model of sorts, not just in how they live, and their personality and the things they stand for. But a lot of times what they do with their training that really works and they'll talk about what works. And that's what also makes it great is that we have a lot of athletes at that top level 
that do love to share their ideas and their thoughts and are are ingrained in the sport enough to be able to have those sessions where they can speak for an hour to a group, whether it be a club or at an event. Okay. Well, let's get into the race itself. It's swim, bike, or run. Why is it in that order? You know, it's a really good question. The When you go back to the the early days of, of triathlon, it, it was actually swim, bike, run, and the, the distances were, were quite odd. I think I think it was a six-mile run, a five-mile bike, and a 500-meter swim or something along those lines. So it was really odd. But then Ironman came around. When Ironman came around, they supported a swim, bike, run discipline order. So I think that sort of just triggered the rest of the world to say, maybe that's something we should do. But when you break it down even more granularly than that, when you think about ending with a swim, what, what do you, you're increasing the risk, right? Because at the end of a race, I might be exhausted. I may have really pushed the run the bike at that particular point. Now I'm in a body of water with nothing to grab onto other than a kayaker. And, and so there's a safety factor that may, may go into that play. When you switch the other disciplines around, if you're going to finish with the bike, think about how fast cyclists cross the finish line. There's no real fanfare. As a fan, you can't really see. You don't know who finished where, who beat whom, what tire or what what hub was in front of someone else's bike. And so all those little elements. When you have a run across the finish line, you get to celebrate. The crowd gets to watch you. There's, there's a lure to that. And so you think about the swim and it being maybe a wetsuit swim. Get the wetsuit on before the race starts, right? Rather than during a race, you have to try to figure out how to get it on and have it be part of the transition. You had to take it off in the triathlon, but but, it, but having it be during a race is a lot different. And then you get on a bike. The bike is a big footprint. You're talking about neighborhoods. You're talking about communities that are impacted. You need to get those people off the course so those people living in those communities are not impacted very long. So having the bike in the middle makes sense. And then what we talked about, using different neighborhoods or different smaller footprints for the run means you're not impacting communities as much as you otherwise would be, and there's a lot more fanfare to finish. So maybe that's a way that people can look at it being a really logical model of swim, bike, and run. Now know that there are races out there that are not swim, bike, run. There's one in Denver that was actually mixing them up. Choose your choose your order that you want, and whoever crossed the line crossed the line will win. Wow! It didn't last very long, <laughs> but it was a concept that people wanted to throw out there. But but there are so there are some that exist. There's not very many. Okay, okay, that's really that's really a choose your own adventure. Really yeah, kind of thing. yeah. Well, I can imagine that would make race directing difficult when you can't clear one element. I can't even fathom what you do with your volunteers, what the city would say about it, but they tried it. The good thing right now is that we've got a lot of other disciplines outside of swim, bike, run. Okay. It's just not many that actually change the order of swim, bike. Okay, okay. Let's break down a race a little bit. Mm-hmm. What are you wearing? What's, a, what's an Olympic athlete wearing? Olympic athlete is going to be wearing a, a very streamlined kit, race kit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be a standard swimsuit that you would wear back in the swimming days. It could be a little bit longer in the leg, very slipstream, probably a lot of technology that's gone into it. It's obviously very competitive suit. It means it can breathe. It's not too tight on the shoulders. The the elite athlete is so dialed in to how things feel Mm -hmm. that with the companies that sponsor them, they're able to really hone in on the detail of what it needs to be, the style, the cut, the feel. Mm -hmm. And so they'll they'll be wearing a lot of what our age groupers wear. There's maybe just a lot more research that's gone into what it is that they're exactly wearing. Okay. 
much does something like that cost? Well, if you're paying retail, it can cost you 250, 300 bucks. Okay, that's yeah. Seems legit. I mean. Yeah, not a wetsuit now. I'm just talking about a plain old suit. So you can okay. add a wetsuit now. You you can get wetsuits over a thousand dollars, and different brands and models and makes, and they're all and a little bit different. Fancy. Yeah, you can get okay. crazy with some of that stuff. So we're talking about wetsuits, and they're talking about the heat in Tokyo. Will the athletes probably <clears throat> wear wetsuits? Do they get enough buoyancy, or will they not because it's too hot? Yeah, you know what? The water temperature will be probably such. That, as a matter of fact, I'm pretty confident okay. um, without talking to, to John Farah, our uh, high performance general manager on some of that detail. Uh, probably because the temperature can be so hot, the body of water is going to be so warm. It's all mm -hmm. it's all relative to body of water and, and ambient right. air temperature. And okay. you're right, it's going to be really, really hot. Here's the good thing though, that they just released something a couple weeks ago that said they're going to be taking extra precautions for those sports that have to be completed in the middle of the day or right. mid to late morning. And so they're gonna allow for a lot more water stops. They're gonna allow for coaches to be in certain key sections to give them whatever they is that the athlete needs. Okay. So they're gonna do that for the marathon, they're gonna do that for triathlon, they're gonna do it for some of these other sports like that. So they've already seen that the temperature is gonna be so extreme that they've got to start looking at things they can do to help the athlete. And it really comes down to safety. Right. If they don't look at the athlete's safety, they miss the mark. And so they're doing that in a really, really good way right now. Okay. So then from the swim to the bike, you've got transition, and transitions are really important because they eat up time or they don't eat up time, depending on how good you are with them. People forget it's part of the race. And some people will never practice a transition. They'll go out and they'll train and they'll swim, they'll train the bike and run, and then they'll get to the transition like, just dawdle. And, and, I, and I'm sitting there as an announcer looking, looking in transition, I'm like, are you kidding me, people, come on. We had one guy, and he's a great guy, and love him to death. We used to have an award for the slowest transition at Adrian Nationals, so he wanted to win that one, right? So he spent 15 minutes, oh 20 minutes, in a transition area just to have fun with it. And, and Steve Jonas, love you to death, buddy. Uh, we got rid of the award. Because <laughs> it was extending our timelines that we didn't have. <laughs> but no, the transition is so critical. And, and you know, I always look back, there are a couple of lead athletes. Laura Bennett, okay. uh, one of our elites, uh, was was on uh, an Olympic team, was fourth Olympic Games. I used to always talk about how amazingly good she was. She would always position herself at the front of the pack, it's a draft legal situation, mm -hmm. front of the pack getting off the bike, and she'd always be one of the first ones out on the run. And then we'd have other elite athletes that would be in the back of the pack off the bike, be one of the last runners, and they got to make up 25 seconds just coming out of transition. They'd just given up 25 seconds, and it drove me crazy. These athletes, we need to remind them that transition, yes, is part of your overall time, but there's some things you really need to be looking at. So when we do some clinics, mm -hmm. we actually go through the best ways to transition. Okay. We've done that with some of our coaches and how they can coach their athletes to do them better. So we're not ignoring it, just some, some don't really feel that it's that critical of an element to, to study. Interesting. Because I would think that's one of the big key factors in how well you do. Yeah. Is uh, Do you like... Do they, well, I, I would imagine at the Olympics, do they get assigned a section yeah, for so, their transition area? Yeah, so what will happen is, is each person has an individual rack in, okay. in those high elite races. Mm -hmm. So it's not like racks we have here. Okay. The bike goes into a, a little air, a little stand, Okay. and then they have the space, and they can do that. But it's still a matter of time. And for the elites, mm -hmm. every second is so right. precious. There are athletes that come out of the water that... Are, are trying to get their wetsuit off. They, they miss the, the bike pack by two seconds, three seconds. 
they never get caught on. They can never, they'll never see the pack again. The pack, the pack rides away from them, and, they, and they're riding by themselves for a while. Sometimes that doesn't happen. They get, they get lucky, and the pack comes together. But same thing happens on a run. Say you bob with your shoe, right, and you lose seven seconds, and you lose by four. That, those are when the coach goes back and says, we, we, let's work through this mm-hmm. and not let that happen again because it could be a gold medal in the Olympic Games. Right. It could be um, winning a race that has a massive prize purse. It could be a lot of things that you just can't ignore it. Okay. The bike. Tell me what components make up a tri-bike to make it different than my hybrid. Yeah, the, 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 the tri-bike is really built for... Uh, two things. It's built for speed mm-hmm. and they're starting to build it more for comfort. Oh, if you're, okay. For a lot of these athletes that are doing long races like an Ironman or a half Ironman or whatever, if that bike you're on, that tri-bike, is not comfortable, how are you going to feel when you come off the bike? Back is red, my shoulders are tight, my arms hurt, uh, I feel like I was just put through a grinder, you're not going to run very well, are you? Right. And so companies have had to start taking a look at that. So they're going to be aerodynamic, mm-hmm. and a lot of them have been through t- uh, wind tunnels to see where they need to okay. do different technology. Probably the biggest advancements that we see are in wheels and bikes, as okay. far as trying to make them more more uh, speed friendly and then more comfortable. That the type of uh, a frame you have, whether it be carbon fiber or aluminum or whatever also is part of that calculation. Some people like riding a steel frame. Some people like riding carbon fiber. Okay. So it comes down to style of choice too, what you're comfortable with, what you have. Weight becomes a factor. I don't want to ride a 19 pound TT frame. I want to ride a 14 and a half pound TT frame. So for some, it'll be weight. Um, different sets of wheels. You can ride a disc, you can ride uh, spoked, you can ride deep dish, you can do all, all sorts of things. This is one sport that I believe on the bike side has made amazing technological advances that have that really, yes, become a lot more expensive, but become a lot more enjoyable. Because people talk about more than their car, the value of their bike. You know, yeah, I spent $15,000 on my new frame. My car is valued at 10, so I actually put more money into my bike than my frame. And there are bikes that actually run that crazy expensive. Holy cow. And that's just for a frame. That's just for a frame and wheels. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And wow. then you got to get yeah. Then you got other things you got to do with it. Um, but yeah, you know what though? That's a rare person. Okay. You know we espouse, and I think you know this too. Yeah. It's just ride that bike that you might have had in your garage for twenty five mm-hmm. years. Mountain bike, old road frame, doesn't matter. That is really what we're trying to to make clear to these people that have never done a triathlon before mm-hmm. is. Borrow a bike if you have to. Um, it, you, you're not going to need a high-end, expensive frame to enjoy the sport. That's not what it's about. Right. Maybe as you stay with it, you might move up to a, a $500 frame. But by no means is that going to be that the reason you're going to enjoy or not enjoy the sport. That's really one of the key drivers that we have to make clear to everybody. It's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of things are going to enter into the picture as to why you enjoy the sport. It, it should be about equipment. Then from the bike to the run, do they change shoes? Or they, yeah, okay. they, they do. Do they, they wear cycling shoes? Yeah, you know, it okay. depends. In, in duathlon, especially in the older days of duathlon, mm-hmm. what would happen is people have these, you wear your running shoes and these special pedals, and then they have like sandpaper on the bottom of these special slide pedals, so you get okay. off the bike and you run your running shoes that you wore on the bike. Okay. The problem with that 
is that a lot of people just couldn't get a feel for the bike in mud oh, okay. shoes. Okay. It just didn't feel right. So 99.5% of the people will actually change into running shoes off the bike when they've been wearing bike shoes. Okay. And then you deposit your helmet and there's not a whole lot of transition from bike to run to really get in place but you might have your race number that you haven't worn on the bike okay you might put that on to start the run uh, maybe you you have uh, a visor okay. that you run with that you didn't obviously have on the bike as well but that transition usually bike to run is really fast okay all right how does a race director map out a course you know it, it is quite a process you, you had you had noted that as one of the questions that, that we maybe talk about mm -hmm. And so in my mind, I was thinking about all the various things that go into even securing a venue. Right. And I was seeing, and, and I had 15 things on my list that when you start breaking it down, mm -hmm. you realize how complex that it is to do this crazy stuff. So, and, I'll, and I won't make this a long answer, I right. promise. Um, it, it, it really is finding the right community support and the right kind of city that would, would validate what it is you ultimately want to do with an event, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. It's it's having the local organizing community of the LOC mm -hmm. be supportive of the kind of course that you're looking to do. So to go back to your, your, your question, there are some cities where if you get on Google Maps mm -hmm. and just start taking a look at what, what routes you could consider, you can find some amazing rides. You can find some rides that go in the countryside or you can find some rides that go right in the middle of the city with, with the city support and showcase um, some things that the city has that, that maybe you wouldn't otherwise see. Uh, if you're an athlete, you may not ever venture downtown in the city if you come to a suburb and, and compete in the suburb. So there's a lot of advantages to that. But our team, I know, when they look at events, they start breaking down. They'll come up with three or four options, right? Mm -hmm. The LOC, the local organizing group, will, will get with them and say, okay, we can do this. We can't because of permitting because the neighborhoods can't get support in certain boroughs mm -hmm. uh, those types of things and then it's just kind of PC okay this one will work why won't this one work what can we can we take this here can we do this can we get on this part of the shoreway uh, can we run in these neighborhoods can we can we run uh, off the lake on, on these paths uh, there's just a lot of give and take so the, the cities really then will take what you provide to them for courses maybe three or four that you like They'll come back to you and say, these are the ones we feel are more favorable. And then the adaptation to that course is made together collectively. And then ultimately over time, hopefully not a whole lot of time, you're able to pinpoint a course that will work. But it really comes down to the goal of the organization and the flexibility and open-mindedness of the city and municipalities okay. as to what course you ultimately end up with. Okay. Like this one, for us to be able to ride on the shoreway. Oh yeah. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing. One of the major thoroughfares in this whole part of the city is incredible that we're able to do that. Leon's triathlon back in 1992 shut down an interstate. Oh, wow. The okay. dad was a, a government official, and the whole interstate was shut down for the bike course. But see, that can happen at certain situations and certain timelines. This city may be able to keep a race here for a long, long time because of what we did here with this event, and that right. ultimately is our goal. Our legacy, hopefully, will be a race that can continue at this, at this particular location. Yeah, because you know when when you talk about breaking, you're like, oh, there's so much to talk about when you when you put together a race. And I just think about the magnitude of something like the Olympics, and how they are able to keep adding sports mm -hmm. and keep finding venues and things like that, and be able to pull this off. It's it gets more amazing every time they have a, a an Olympics. 
it is a daunting task. Having been around people that have produced, and I'm not talking just about outdoor sports too, Mm -hmm. what what the expectations are and the pressures that you feel, the stresses of putting Mm -hmm. on an Olympic caliber event at every level, is you're creating brand new movements for a lot of sports. there, there, are, there are some out there that, are, that let's, we're going to make some rule changes that make this sport more uh, friendly for television. Mm-hmm. So what might that look like? Right. We're going to cover it different. What might that look like? Uh, for us, we were we were in, in Long Beach a couple weeks ago for the Legacy Triathlon, okay. which is going to be the venue in the area for, oh, for 2028. Yes. Oh, so that's going to be nice. Yeah, look what we've already done. Yeah. 2019. We're already on the course that okay. we're going to use for Olympic Games. Yeah, it will adapt to something different. It'll be it'll be different come twenty twenty eight. But we are already starting that process. We're the first Olympic sport to be in the LA market footprint for wow. for the Olympics okay. and, the, and that movement. But but you need that kind of for an outdoor sport like ours. You mm-hmm. need that kind of time because next year, what are we going to be able to do? Mm-hmm. What are we going to be able to do two years from now, three years from now, and continue to mature? what it is that we're able to do and to find different options to go downtown Long Beach mm-hmm. and, and looking at just different ways we can do run courses. And so we're going to ramp up over these next 10, 11 years and do some amazing things. But that's an example of what you have to do with some of these sports to really be ready for the Olympic Games. Interesting. Well, you talked about like rule changes for television. Let's talk a little bit about announcing. How do you announce a sport like this? in at the venue especially when you've got racers that are off on the course and how do you keep people entertained i guess yeah i wish i I could say we have a drone that actually covers the entire course and will give us digital information that comes back to us wouldn't that be awesome but but unfortunately that hasn't been uh, something we've been able to 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 do but but we do have this we have technology okay so on the athlete's ankles, obviously, is a timing chip. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of timing places, locations okay. on the course. So what happens is we can tell stories. Okay. About such and such is, is, has just hit the first um, timing mat on the bike course and has a 30-second lead over, blah, blah, blah. And then we can tell a story about that athlete or those athletes. And, and then we can talk about another age group where we know what's coming up. We've got 15 athletes within 10 seconds of each other. So those timing chips and those timing mats allow us to tell stories. Interesting. And, and so then, you'll hear yeah. that Saturday. We'll tell a lot of stories. Okay. There's a see, and that's really interesting because uh, when we talked with D- the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant, I just we call him. That's how we call him. So <laughs> when we talked with the dulcet tone, when we talked with the dulcet tones, hi Jason. Jason Bryant, <laughs> I will let him know it. Um, when we talked with the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant we understood a lot more of how much work and research that announcers have to do in order to make it entertaining and it's just like you have to know all the you have to know all the athletes or at least all the elite athletes once they start bunching up you've got uh, a little little less time to tell stories but you do have to really know the competitors and know know what stories to tell you just answered the question. Yeah, you, you did. You did um, a very nice job. The, the research that goes into this is immense. Sometimes my staff says, "What are you doing in your room?" I, I say, for every event that I announce, it's thirty hours of prep. So you start breaking that right. down, mm-hmm. and because what do you have to do? Well, you have to get your scripts ready. You have to get your award ceremonies ready. You got to then go through the athletes. You got to pull up bios. You got to make sure you have the 
the, the pronunciations down mm-hmm. for the athletes. Uh, you, you need to be able to speak to the stories. And so you'll do research on certain athletes to get stories about them. You talk about their finishes in previous nationals. You talk about their finishes at world championships. This is stuff you, that you need as good announcers. Mm-hmm. Don't just come announce and, and do a generic announcing. They really should know more about the athletes and about the city and about mm-hmm. the venue and about historically what the sport has seen in particular aspects of whether it be held a world's here in Cleveland 1996, which we did. Mm-hmm. Well, we should be able to talk a little bit about that. Hunter Kemper was a junior. Hunter Kemper's a four-time Olympian you know, that just got inducted to our Hall of Fame. So you can talk about those types of things, but it does take research and it does take time. It's, it's amazing. And, and I think it's one of those very underappreciated. Uh, it's an underappreciated art and uh, one that's taken for granted sometimes. I think you just, oh, there's somebody there to entertain me. I think you're so right that people don't realize how much work we put in behind the scenes. I really believe that. We had a, a photographer on who, is, who had shot like 14 Olympics and he trains. Oh, jeez. He trains. He'll run in the middle of the night, train all the gear. Just he's like, hey, you got 14-hour days when you're walking up hills. You got to train. You can't be. You got to get the stamina up. It's yeah. amazing. Like, oh. Announcing also is very tiring. Yes. Because you'll be talking for 14, 15 hours in a given day, and then you got to train the next day and do it again. Right. So, so how do you how do you how do you prepare your voice and how do you maintain your voice? I have what I call my magic elixir, which is honey, lemon, vanilla. And le- it has to be lemon-lime Gatorade. I don't know how crazy that is, but it is my magic elixir. I've been doing it for 10 years. So you add honey, lemon, and, and vanilla, vanilla to, to every Gatorade. It has to be lemon-lime Gatorade, yes, every time I announce. Wow. And that just keeps everything lubricated? Yeah, I've had to test it over time, but it is amazing what, it, what it'll do for me. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's talk about Sydney because uh, you were the team leader for Sydney. I was. First time triathlons in the Olympics. So, hey, do you know much about how what it took to get triathlon into the games? Yeah, and and I I really got to put it out there for a guy named Les McDonald, who was the the IT president at the time. Okay. He had a vision. He's deceased now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but he was. He, he was a labor leader in his day, and he just knew what it was going to take to get this sport on the program. So the ITU started in 1989. Okay. And by 1994, we knew we were in the games in Sydney. Okay. I, there's no other sport that's been able to go from inception to Olympic Games that fast. Quick. It is crazy quick. And I remember the day in the office that we got the facts we got the facts now. This is funny to mention. We got a fax <laughs> from Les McDonald because he would fax everything every week. Okay. We got that announcement. It was on this piece of paper that he faxed over, and it was the decree that triathlon was going to be in the Olympic Games. And and I, I can tell you where I was standing, or I was standing in the office looking at the information, how, how elated we were. But then the real work started because... We had six years to really now put together some amazing, and I say we, the, mm-hmm. the sport, right. some amazing plans and ideas. So for me to be part of that process, mm-hmm. for me to be able to lead the American team was something I'll cherish forever. It was the hardest, because we were there for six weeks. We had a long training camp and then the event. So we were in a place called Wollongong. Oh, and I've then, been there. Yeah, yeah, and then we moved into okay. Sydney for, as we got close to race day. It was a hardest six week of, of management I've ever done for a very, very, very small team. 
Okay. Even compared to the 450, 500 person teams that I'd managed by myself, that one was tougher. And you know why it was tougher? Because the pressure that's on you as a team leader to make sure everything goes right, to make sure that every concern or issue that arises, you find solutions for immediately. So that you have the right food, you're eating the, at the right restaurants, you're getting the right type of training with the team, and you're in and out of the city a lot. It's, it's frustrating for athletes to be caught in, in congested roads mm -hmm. for hours when they're hungry and thirsty, want to get back to the apartment that we were staying in. So there's all those things you had to balance. And I, but but you know to this day though is probably one of the most amazing experiences and I'll never forget it. Were you kind of happy? Speaking of coordinating food and drink, were you happy that you were in a country that had food that you were probably more familiar with? You know, it's it's funny that some people say, yeah, you shouldn't prejudice yourself prejudice yourself to say that that made it easier, but it did. Mm -hmm. And it did because we were starting from scratch. The, the Australian food um, was excellent, was mm -hmm. amazing. We understood it. Our Australian counterparts told us the places to eat, okay. the type of foods to eat. Sydney is an amazing city that uh, even during the Olympic Games, it never felt that crowded. Oh, interesting. So we could get into restaurants, we could get in to eat, we could get in to do some of those things. Whereas in other places, even for a world championship, you can't get in the restaurants because they're packed with city folk. Mm -hmm. And then you add athletes on top of it and your lines are going to be two or three hours. And you eat late, right. eat late in Europe. And, and so it kind of throws your schedule off there and your sleep is off because of it. And so no, it was, it was great. Lo love Europe and love other parts of the world to death because I've been to a lot of them through my, through my work. But it was really exciting to be in Australia. Such a beautiful backdrop. The Opera House yeah, and the bridges around yeah. there, it was amazing. Yeah. That, that, and it was a great games. Mm -hmm. Wow, I'm still blown away that you got in within a few years of becoming a, a federation. Wow, that's amazing. It's crazy. Especially when you've got sports who are angry because breakdancing snuck in. or, or Well, and, and women's softball that got dropped. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. Men's baseball got dropped. dropped. again. Think about that. Yeah. Wrestling almost got dropped. Well, wrestling. Jason told me about the problems yeah. with wrestling. So. Yeah. And they made adaptations to what yeah, they did there they, too. Yeah, that was a, that was an interesting story. But but you're right, and so we, we and you know what we have our our IT was amazing. Mm -hmm. We've got a, a a group that is really committed to the sport, and they are progressive and they're good with change. Okay. And so we're fortunate that we are going down a pathway that I'm sure the IOC is like that sport has it. Okay. Right. Okay. We feel good about it. We take pride in that ease as a national federation. We take great, great pride in our ITU, so it's, which is a really nice thing. Nice. What should we look for in Tokyo? Are you going to Tokyo? I am going to Tokyo. All right. When do you have to go? Well, you know what? We just we just brought this up as as senior leaders of, of USAT. I'm not sure when we're going to be there. We haven't broke the schedule down that much for our, okay. our mm -hmm. top leaders and organization to be there. But obviously, we want to be there ahead of the game a little bit so that we are able to do some things with, with our foundation supporters and get a lay of the land and get over to the, the triathlon course and be able to see it a little bit and experience some of that. But, uh, you know, what makes it hard is it takes place right around the time that we have our own national championships, right? So oh, balancing okay. for our age groupers and our youth mm -hmm. and our juniors, the biggest races of their year, and then we've got Olympic Games. And so I, I oversee our national events and events team as part of that. So 
I'll kind of be removed from that a little bit as part of that event. But Olympic Games, I mean, you can't go wrong. It's Olympic Games. It's right. going to be an amazing event. Our women, right now, number one in the world, okay. are going to be really, really hard to beat. Um, matter of fact, we don't even have any idea of who's probably going to ultimately make that team because we've got so many oh, that are competing at okay. that top level. Okay. Our guys are making great improvements. Okay. We're, we're excited by that. And we've seen some performances this year by our guys that we hadn't seen for a long, long time. So I, even, I think even our guys would be more competitive than maybe what was the, the, the case um, in, in 16. Okay. But which we still had a good team there, but not, not a great, great team. This one is going to be tough. And so could we do really, really well in these Olympic Games? I think we will. They added a mixed team, a, not, excuse me, a, not a mixed team. Really, it's yeah. a mixed reel. They got rid of yeah. the team in there, which is a new element that we're really, really good at. Okay. What? Yeah, talk to me about this because this sounds really interesting. Yeah, it is. It's... It's a relay that was created so that males and females would be part of the same team. And so they do these very short, what you'd almost call super sprint triathlons. Mm -hmm. It's like 17, 18 minutes long. Okay. And you head up to the next athlete, right? Okay. So you have a, an athlete, male or female, that goes first. They go in the water. They do a whole mini triathlon, sprint triathlon. And then you hand off to the male. Then you hand off to the female. Then you hand off to the male. And so you, you're doing an hour a little bit over an hour of, of racing. Okay. And it's really exciting. It's high paced. People fall across the finish line. Lactic acid is everywhere. People are, crowds are going nuts. It really is one of the most exciting and high energy disciplines that, that we added not too long ago. That I think people will fall in love with it. When they watch it in the Olympic games, they'll love it. When they, when they have a chance to do it themselves, because we, we've done it for years at our junior national championship. We've done it for years at our collegiate national championship. We might start doing it with our NCAA programs at some point in time when we get men's added, maybe 10 years from now. It's, it's just an element that's fun. It's not standard relay like we're accustomed to, where you have one person that does a bike, one person that does the, the, yeah. the, the swim, one person does a run. This is actually, each person does mini triathlon. So that's what makes it different and when people learn about it, they'll be like, we should do that. Race directors will say, we should do that. That's interesting. And how does someone train for that versus a full-on triathlon? Because, I mean, the, the distances are really short. I wrote them down. Wait. They are. They are. Did I? Wait. And, and they do, there is some variance that you have with the distances, but they are fairly it's, standard. Yeah, this is going to be a 300-meter swim, 8-kilometer bike, and 2-kilometer run. So you're talking, uh, like a fraction of a fifth of what a regular sure. triathlon is oh, yeah. so how do you train for something like that because you really like endurance is a big factor in in the olympic distance mm -hmm. and here you're just how do you get your body to go that much faster and sprint that hard yeah not, not being a coach of our athletes to be able to answer that specifically okay. but, but but knowing knowing that there's an element of speed that has to go into play the good thing is our athletes do speed work okay and as athletes of speed work they actually learn uh, how the body's going to react to that type of racing. We've also done a lot of races. Okay. Where we tried a lot of different athletes within mm -hmm. the mixed team relays. Oh, okay. So we're giving a feel for right now who can perform at the level they need to perform for that super fast relay uh, segment. Here's the good thing. It's because we've been doing it so long in our junior national championships, because we've been doing it so long in our collegiate championships, that we have athletes now that have been raised with that mindset of what it takes and how hard it, you have to go and how much it hurts, that... Like Ben Canute as an example. You know, Ben Canute has been part of the mixed team or mixed relay scene for a long, long time. He may be the best mixed relay athlete in the world if you were to break down a split, mm -hmm. but he's been doing it for a long, long time. 
So he knows what his body has to go through in order to get to that high, high point. And that's that's what some of the other athletes going through the pipeline are going to be able to do for us. We're going to continue to do this as long as we can because it's going to reap huge benefits for us and our success. Mm-hmm. And I do believe we'll be successful in the Olympic Games in this, in this format. Excellent. Thank you so much, Tim, for your knowledge and being so generous with your time on what was a really busy weekend. I did see him on Saturday and Sunday during the swim portion. He was on the beach with his little announcing gear and a little microphone, and he had a little backpack full of stuff. And he had his, honestly, the lemon-lime Gatorade was there the entire time. <laughs> That sounds so vile. I don't care if that works. I think the listeners will forgive a little raspiness from us during Tokyo 2020, (laughs) knowing that we are not suffering through drinking that elixir. Well, we'll have to come up with our own recipe. Something. Of something that will soothe, that does not involve lemon-lime Gatorade. I got to tell you, so we were talking about the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant, And it turns out that Tim and Jason actually know each other. Tim is the creator of On the Mat, which is a rankings for high school wrestling in Colorado. So Jason and he know each other from when Jason was in Colorado working for USA Wrestling. So it's pretty awesome that the two worlds collided. And now they're both on Team Olympic Fever. So we could sit them down at the table and just listen to them talk to each other. Because Tim's got that announcing voice, too. He does. It's great. And because it's an announcer, we need to talk about the voice. And I got to tell you, the story I read today in the wrap-up from uh, the Cleveland Plain Dealer said, But everything went off uh, as planned on Sunday as thousands of spectators enjoyed the race, visited the food trucks, and heard the crisp public address announcers backed by upbeat music as they shared tidbits about the racers. So, so he's crisp. I, he is crisp. I think we should call him like the crisp vocal cords of Tim Yount. Well, especially if he's drinking a lot of that Gatorade, <laughs> that will that will fry your voice, I think. So we have the dulcet tones and the, crisp, the crispy voice. The crisp cords. I hope he's not offended by the crisp cords because that sounds easily misinterpreted. We'll work with it. Let's move on to our Team Olympic Fever update. We have a lot of exciting news today. Laura Wilkinson, our Team Olympic Fever diver, received a training and travel grant from the Women's Sport Foundation this past week, which is such a big deal because, oh my gosh, just being able to get some money to help offset your training and the travel that you're going to have to do. And we know that she and her family have made a lot of financial sacrifices already in order for Laura to make this comeback. So that was pretty awesome. Very excellent timing. Yes. Hooray Women's Sports Foundation. Yay. Also, our handball member, Sarah Gascon, is now Dr. Sarah Gascon because she has finished her PhD in kinesiology with a focus on biomechanics, which is so exciting because I saw it on Twitter and I was like, wait a second, is this Dr. Noop or did I miss something? And she said, yeah, I got it like the day after I got back from Pan Ams. So it's brand new. Nice. That Do you think she'll still talk to us now that she's got a fancy oh, title? Oh, yeah, yeah. She, okay. You know, some doctors do. <laughs> some doctors do call you back. And then our Team Olympic Fever water polo player Tony Azevedo was elected as an athlete representative to the Pan Am Sports Athletes Commission, and he is one of five new members who will serve an eight-year term. That's really exciting. That's a big deal that the he's, yes. he was the athletes who were at the Pan Am Games voted on these representatives, so it's a big Big honor to be selected. 
And uh, I was reading a little bit about the election and more athletes voted in this election than in any previous um, athlete commission. So he was obviously very well supported. Nice. Which we would agree with. Uh, Moving on to Tokyo 2020 news. There was more heat-related concerns dealing with uh, test events from this past weekend where um, they had the rowing test event and several rowers were treated for heat stroke during the event, even though they've had some cooling measures at the end. I believe they had like ice baths and things like that. But our Team Olympic Fever Japanese correspondent, Roy Tomizawa, was also at that test event. And he said it seemed to go fairly smoothly, although a lot of the spectator stands were not covered and that got pretty hot. So Hatbrellas. Hatbrellas indeed. One of the other test events that happened that had concerns for the heat was the open water swimming event and that water got pretty hot it got to be that started at 7 a.m and the temperature of the water was over 30 degrees celsius so the water can't get too hot the fina says that you can't have open water swimming when it's over 31 degrees so yeah so that yeah they were tight so they could move that up as well. So you could see open water swimming at 5.30 in the morning. I guess they're pushing it up to as early as light allows because you can't obviously do that stuff in the dark (laughs) because that would be a whole other sort of, there might be monsters in the water that come out at night. You could have like a Jaws situation. Let's not tempt fate. (laughs) You know, so either the little open water swimmers will be eaten by a shark or boiled like a noodle. That's your options. Wow. You're making that sound like a great event to do. <laughs> well, my guess, is, my guess is no wetsuits. Oh, it, no. Yeah. I mean. Maybe somebody just... will swim naked. Oh. <laughs> you can't get smaller than some of those Speedos, though. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> open water skimmy, skinny dip. <laughs> Give open water a whole new meaning. <laughs> Oh, man. Because uh, if we don't laugh about this heat, we're going to cry. It's yeah, just, it's yeah. so upsetting. Right. Now that tickets are kind of out of the way, one of the next big travel issues for people is getting flight and hotel. The number of flights to Japan is increasing. According to the japannews.com, the transportation ministry is going to open new flight routes over central Tokyo on March 29. So you can get there. Hopefully, yes. It's going to that's going to be through Haneda Airport. So that will increase the amount of uh, capacity that airport has for international flights. So they're hoping that this will help increase the number of options for people. I keep looking. Not quite. We're not quite there yet on when the calendar opens for a lot of flights. But hopefully, hopefully that right. And if they're they're still making changes to the flight patterns and the airlines then have to take that much longer mm-hmm. to come up with their schedules. Right. Who knows? We'll see. We'll get you there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll moving... put you in a slingshot if we need to. <laughs> you know, I could just bounce slingshot across across the country to different, you know, we can work out atolls that your slingshot could go to. Yeah, it's like you fly to someplace close, mm-hmm. and then we just slingshot you the last section. Okay. You know, Marshall Islands to Tokyo. Boom. <laughs> I hope there's room for my luggage. 
pack light. Well, you're not going to get a hotel room, so where are you going to put your stuff? <laughs> That's what I worry about, really. Like, just just buy your hat brella there. You'll be all set. <laughs> mm, I'll have to bring extra deodorant. <laughs> just buy it. You'll have your Visa card. That fits in your pocket. You'll be all set. Well, it's true. Like, all I need to do is go and get a lot of Tokyo 2020 gear. Yep. And then just go in the subway. Remember what Sarah was telling us about all the vending machines in the subway? I'm sure there's a deodorant vending machine in the subway. I mean, if it were the New York City subway, I would hope there's a deodorant vending machine. (laughs) Well, I'll call that plan O. (laughs) For oh no, we've resorted to this. And in other Olympic news, I know this is going to end on kind of a downer note. Okay, I'm sorry. This is actually, to me, hysterical. Okay, so Italy is now risking exclusion from the Olympics because the government is trying to take over their Olympic organization. Yes, so the Italian government has said, we don't like the way our NOC, which is called CONI, C-O-N-I, is being run. So we're going to take it over. And the IOC is saying, excuse me, that's not what we do. The point is that your Olympic organizing committee is independent of your government. And so Italy doesn't like that. The IOC doesn't like that. They all need to just sit down with some Chianti and calm down. It's true, though. It'll be interesting to see what happens, especially because of 2026. So we'll see what happens here. This is the other thing about this story is that The U.S. should take notice because the U.S. government is trying to take more control of the USOPC because of the way it's been run and and all of the issues that they've had with uh, safe sport issues. And the U.S. government wants to see some action taken. And if they overreach that too far, the IOC may send them a nice letter, too. And I can't imagine the IOC has publicly stated they don't like that bill. Oh, oh, did they? Okay. Yeah, there was a, a public statement saying, we are concerned that the U.S. government is overstepping, but we haven't read the details and, we, you know, when the laws, pa- you know, they mm-hmm. couched it in all this diplomatic language. But yeah, so, so now it's the U.S. and Italy, obviously U.S. being a major player size-wise, Italy being a major player because it's hosting 2026. Mm-hmm. So what message are these countries saying to the IOC? To me, it's saying, we're concerned your NOCs are corrupt. There's that element. And they they also may not understand that the IOC wants to keep things separate. But the problem the governments are facing is that they're like, well, you know, you can't have nice things. I don't know how much money the, the government gives to Coney to let them operate, but... Well, the U.S. doesn't give anything. No, no, that's true. So that will be a development to watch because other countries have been excluded for this reason. I believe uh, Qatar was. Is that the one? In- India. Oh, yeah, that's right. So the the IOC ain't going to fool around. They will take you out. I wonder, though, with, you know, it's one thing when it's India and Qatar. It's mm-hmm. another thing when it's Italy. And it's another thing when it's the U.S. I know. I know. And there's not like, what do you do when you say? But they, they, they took Russia out. Except sure. for, I mean, the IAAF took Russia out more than the IOC did, but the IOC also allowed allowances. So what would the IOC do for a situation like this? Right, because this is the organizing committee. This isn't right. saying, because it's not something that affects 
the athletes directly. You know, with the doping, it, they're saying the athletes are cheating. Right. Part of a state sponsored, but the athletes themselves are the problem. Mm -hmm. This has nothing to do with the athletes. Mm -hmm. This has to do with the big boys in the back rooms and how it's run. And are you really going to tell the athletes they can't come because we don't like how your government is involving in our business? Right, right. And they would get uh, sports and politics don't mix. Yeah. Mm hmm. Okay. Reminder that uh, you can join our Facebook group and talk with a whole bunch of people about the Olympics whenever your local friends and family get sick of you spouting off. We are here for you for that. So Facebook group is Olympic Fever Podcast. So on that note, we will wrap it up for this week and we will catch you back here next week for more Olympic stories. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Olympfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Hi, Jason.